So you're here? If you're here, your work is done. All you have to do now is listen. So we saw in the paper that Manilow is talking about his first new pop album in years, which is the perfect segue for this. We got an interview queued up from the archives, one of Paul's all-time favorites. It's also the interview that has received the most emails from people who tuned in. A great newspaper journalist named Brandy A. Thomas was interviewing Paul back in 2011. And Paul told her, probably my favorite interview of all time was with a lyricist named Marty Panzer. Marty wrote Through the Years for Kenny Rogers, and he wrote a lot of songs for Barry Manilow. So, who is Mr. Panzer? Well, Marty Panzer's a great lyricist who's had songs known all over the world. He began writing songs with his pal Barry Manilow when they both worked in the CBS TV mailroom. They wanted a career in music, so they began writing commercial jingles. Now, from there, you could say Marty Panzer's songs have more than just taken off. Hey, he wrote songs for Barry Manilow, like... It's a miracle. This one's for you all the time and even now. Not only has Marty Panzer written songs for Barry Manilow, but he wrote the Kenny Rogers classic Through the Years. His songs have been recorded by the likes of Dionne Warwick, Frankie Valley, Gladys Knight, Julio Iglesias, Dusty Springfield, and lots of others. Marty Panzer has 35 gold and platinum records, four BMI Million Play Awards, a three million play award, and record sales in excess of 70 million units. Impressive, isn't it? There's also a live event called An Evening with Marty Panzer featuring songs and stories and performances by many guest composers and artists. Paul saw An Evening with Marty Panzer back in 2012 and we'll tell you that story soon, so stay tuned. Hey, real quick, just remember the Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by people just like you. If you would, please visit thepaulleslie.com slash support. And we thank you for being a patron of the spoken word. Okay. The songs of Marty Panzer are loved by many, and the host of this show is no exception. It is our pleasure to present a great and passionate lyricist, a man who says he is about things that last. The Marty Panzer interview was played on the radio many times, and now it's available on all the new media like Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio, and more. We hope that what you're about to hear will find a way into your heart and soul. So let's pull out that precious tape. Let's listen together. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our great pleasure to welcome our special guest, Mr. Marty Panzer. Thanks so much for making the time to do this interview. Happy to be here, and it's a great pleasure for me as well. Who is Marty Panzer? Marty Panzer is a very lucky guy who works very hard to stay that way. My mom was the center of my universe, and then CBS, and then Barry, and now songwriting. A songwriter, would you say you focus more on the lyrics or the melodies? Uh, 90% uh, lyrics. Over the last couple of years, I've actually begun uh, writing some melodies uh, to lyrics I'm writing, but uh, that's a very new thing. 
primarily it's been lyrics. So take us back a while and tell us what was life like growing up. It was very isolated. It was just my mom and I in a small one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. We didn't have uh, very much money. My mom always made sure that I was happy. I never knew the difference. We were the same as everyone else who lived in the area. There was always a lot of music, a lot of music playing all the time. And maybe that's why we were so happy. And what kind of music did you hear around the house? Mice fencing. We had a lot of mice. And you would hear them fighting with each other all night long. But I don't know if you could consider that music, but after we got past the mice fencing, we uh, we found, well, you know, in order, really, uh, for years, I was obsessed with Jackie Wilson. I just loved the performance quality. I loved the orchestra quality. Uh, when Jackie Wilson passed, I found Andy Williams. Andy sang all the popular songs at the time, but when he sang them, I could finally understand the words, and the words were always the most important thing to me. Now, why do you think that is, that the words are the most important thing to you? Because they move me. Because words in a book, words in a letter, words in a note, words move me in a way that visual art doesn't. I've gone to all the uh, great uh, art institutes and, uh, you know, walked around for five hours and never seen anything that looked more inspiring than, oh, that's nice yellow. Oh, that's great blue. And I come out of there and other people are crying and uh, uh, heaving sighs and, and I don't even understand it. But on a word, you can get me. On a word, you can get me, and uh, and it and it fills my head with emotion. And and words have always been able to do that to me. I remember when I was a really young kid, I would take the subway to CBS, and I read the first Rod McEwen book, which I think was "Listen to the Warm," and I had experienced none of these uh, emotions, none of these feelings, none of these uh, heartbreaks, none of these. Ex- joys, none of none of any of the things he was speaking about, and yet I cried like a baby on the subway. It was all so real and so moving, and I wondered, God, will I ever have as rich a life? Will anybody ever love me as much? Will I ever love anybody as much? Will I lose? Will I win? Uh, will I live without? Will I live with? The power of words reached me when I was very young. Can you remember early things you wrote? whether a poem or a story, not necessarily lyrics? I only remember this because my mom would remind me. I wrote an article for public school about the two dogs that were sent into space, Litvak and Latka, or Latka and somebody else, two, a black and a white dog that was sent up in Sputnik. And uh, it was a big deal. I made the front page of my uh, fourth-grade uh, newspaper, and I was quite the celebrity at that time. We're planning to turn that into a Broadway musical with uh, Peter's approval. <laughs> Not really. It's just the first thing you asked. The first thing I ever wrote, that actually really is the first thing I ever wrote. <laughs> that really hits home for me. I'll <laughs> tell you about that in an email. What about the first lyrics you ever wrote? Well, you know, Barry and I were always at the piano at CBS, after CBS, between mail runs and between all the things that were happening, we were always at the piano. I, I can't ever tell you the first we ever wrote, but one we wrote at the very beginning was um, 
The first lady I know, she is sweeter than an apple pie. The Sunday school kind of golden rule kind of girl mom wants you to try. And yet I met her at a noisy bar where all the noisy boys congregate. She understood it wouldn't do any good, but she was just too lonely to wait. That song had a beginning, a middle, an end, and we were so proud we had finally written a complete song. So that's one of the earliest. I mean, that's not the entire song, but that's the beginning of one of the earliest songs. It almost worked like a spoken word piece. Well, it had music. It had fabulous music. Barry wrote yep. fantastic music. The first lady I know, she is far more sweet. I mean, he wrote beautiful music to it. It was before we really started recording or anything, but it it had uh, beautiful music to it. Who knows? With Barry, you never know. He could be singing it now. He never forgets anything. He could be singing it now in the Uruguay at the uh, Festival of the Arts. Who knows? So where do you get the inspiration to write something? This one's for you, and even now, and it's a miracle, all happened to me. So sometimes real events precipitated the song, and uh, it was just what was coming out of me uh, through every pore and meant so much to me that I was fortunate to have an out but to be able to express it. So lots of it. Marilyn Allen Bergman, two of the most famous songwriters of all time. Uh, she was the president of ASCAP. Marilyn Allen once told me a songwriter, or maybe especially a lyricist, is always going within himself to bring up new ideas. Therefore, you have to replenish the well inside you by reading, by listening, by learning, by communicating, by being aware of the universe. And I think I am. I think I am. I mean, if there's an award for watching a hardball seven times a day, I probably get it. And so uh, my, my inspiration comes from what I see every day and also, uh, sadly or happily, from the things that really happen to me. So take us back to this CBS mailroom. What was that job like? And I'm wondering, did your mind wander a lot when you thought of stuff you could write? You know, the mailroom was piled and piled and piled of paper, but it was all showbiz. It was the exciting new world I had always dreamed of finding. When I was alone in that one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn with my mom, I said, there must be more to this. There must be a world out there with right people, handsome people, people that were uh, learning and living and doing more than I was doing. And CBS was the place. So I really loved uh, every moment of it from the mailroom until I became the manager of honor operations. If my mind ever wandered, it was to those beautiful and handsome people that were everywhere in the company. I hadn't seen those kind of people in Brooklyn, not a one. He's been your friend for a long time, and he's also been a songwriting partner. What does he like to work with creatively? He's mean, he's vicious, he's insensitive. He No, 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 really. He's a fountain of creative ideas. Barry has more ideas in a minute than the United Nations has in the 40 years. He's also a perfectionist. That's a very uh, good trait, uh, and that's part of the reason that he's been successful so long. And he's also the most appreciative person I've ever met. 
He is so happy when we write something, uh, well, especially regarding the writing, when we write something, it means so much to him that we've done this together. We have a special joy that comes from being best buddies, from appreciating, from hearing in our head the same ideal. And so when we accomplish that, he's very appreciative and so am I. It's nothing but a joyful relationship. What was it like the first time you ever heard something you wrote performed on the radio or on a record? Well, I grabbed my pants, I said goodbye to whoever I was with, and I ran to call Barry. What else could I do? I said, Barry, put the radio on. You can't believe it. It's actually our song on the radio. And he said, what? <laughs> it was great. It was great. It was just, it was, it was a little unreal, you know? I think at that time we were so young, we didn't realize how difficult it was and how extraordinary it was. We know that as years have gone on. You can't get on the radio. But for us, it was just uh, uh, smooth as silk. We wrote the songs. We released the songs. Everyone loved the songs. Our record company supported the songs. And they were on the radio, and they sold a million copies before uh, the end of the week. So we were very fortunate. We were very fortunate then and, and appreciate it now probably even more than we did then. We're talking with lyricist Marty Panzer. Your songs have been covered by a lot of influential people. What is it like today? You said you're even almost more appreciative. But what is it like now when you hear someone, you're flipping through the radio, and bam, there's your song. Well, you know, Daft Punk was a revelation. <laughs> we never heard who's been sleeping in my bed exactly covered like Daft Punk, like Daft Punk actually covered it. But we were very happy with it. You know, the ones that stand out are uh, Teddy Pendergrass did a magnificent uh, version of This One's For You, and it was after his accident. And the cover of the album had Teddy standing up and it was a, his way of saying, I'm okay. I can stand up. And he did this beautiful version of this one's for you. I always loved it. Diane Shure, when Barry produced the Diane Shure album, she sang as brilliantly and as emotionally as I could ever dream. I mean, that was perfection. When Diane Shure sang, Life is Good, I would sit on the piano bench next to her, holding her hand, and we would both cry. <laughs> it took 150 takes because we kept crying, and they had to start over again. But it was just absolutely heart-wrenching. Uh, she's so good. Well, we recently had the opportunity to interview Diane Shure, and the album you're talking about, Midnight, you talked a moment there about what a pleasure it was, but what was it like working with her? Well, I'll tell you, if you have the time, I'll tell you a wonderful story. What impressed me the first time I ever saw her. I went down to San Juan Capistrano where she was playing at a club, and she looked great and she sounded great, and there wasn't anything remarkable about that. I knew she sounded great. She was a multi-Grammy winning artist. But then in the middle of the show, she said to the audience, she said to the audience, you know, this year I had an operation that could have lost my voice forever, but it didn't. She said, this year I've lost 40 pounds. She said, this year I'm loved by a man more than I've ever been loved by anyone in my life. 
And this year, I am 11 years sober. Well, I just fell back in the chair. I was so impressed with her honesty and with the fact that she was smart enough to realize that her life was so wonderful at this time. Smart enough to realize that. Not everyone is. I ran outside, called Barry, and told Barry the story, and he said, that's the song. And we wrote the song because I had never heard of a song that said, life is good. I never heard of a song that talked about, I know life is good. I'm happy, and I'm grateful, and I'm thankful, and I'm appreciative. It's one of my favorite songs ever. She did a brilliant job of it, and I just love the lady. Well, speaking of legends, it had to have been thrilling to have Frankie Valli record a song of yours. Tell us about the song he did, and what did you think of his rendition? He recorded a song that was my second record ever with Richard Kerr. Richard Kerr had written the music to Mandy and Looks Like We Made It, and and uh, I'll Never Love This Way Again. And Richard was one of the great, the great writer of the 70s and 80s, the great melodist of the 70s and 80s. And this was one of the new songs we had written. And listening to the legendary Frankie Valley's voice on top of a song written with Richard Kerr was uh, stupefying. But strangely, or just by coincidence, I met uh, Frankie Valley about two, three months ago at a party for Neil Tadaka. And I walked over to Frankie and I shook his hand and I said, uh, you know, I wrote a song that you once sang. And he said, where did we go wrong? Didn't we belong together? He knew the song right off the top of his head and sang it to me at the party. It was really a thrill. I mean, this is one of the great voices of our time. One of the most distinctive voices of our time. Tell us about your song, It's a Miracle, that appeared on the album Barry Manilow 2. Well, It's a Miracle has a funny story. You know, one day Barry called from, I don't know where, somewhere in Europe, and he said to me, I have good news and I have bad news. And I said, yeah. And he said, every time I hang up on you and I tell you some wonderful thing has happened. We just played for the Queen of England, meaning he and Beth. We had just played for the Queen of England, or we just sold a 60,000 seat uh, arena out, or we just did the Burt Backrack special, or any wonderful thing. You always say the same thing about these great events. And when I hang up the phone, it's running in my, my head for the next week. So the bad news is I stole something that you say to me every day. The <laughs> good news is I left all the rest of the words blank. It's a miracle. Oh, right. I say that, don't I? And he said, you say that, don't you? And you always do. And I wrote a song called It's a Miracle. It's fantastic. Now all I need is the rest of the words. And uh, when he came back to New York City, I wrote the rest of the words. You know, it's been his opening number for 32 years. For as long as he's been on the road, it's been his opening number. He's tried 100 other numbers as the opening number. But the one number that gets the audience excited in a familiar, friendly, comfortable approachable way is uh, It's a Miracle, and it was our first hit single, too. Absolutely. I remember seeing him in concert the last time he was in Atlanta, which sadly he hasn't been back since then, and he, of course, opened with It's a Miracle. And the mentioning of the cities, it makes you think about a lot of different things. 
But I have to agree, a perfect opening number. You know, what I wanted to do was not make it a travelogue. In the second verse, I never knew you looked so good. I never knew anyone could. I must have been crazy to ever have gone away. I almost forgot what it's like holding you near me at night. But now that I'm home again, you know that I'm home to stay. I warmed it up. I took it from a traveling city song to a more emotional song of reunion. And I think that made the difference. And everybody was surprised. Nobody expected it to go in that direction, least of all me. And uh, and I think that uh, was my first uh, breakthrough in terms of uh, my first understanding of what my contribution could be to a song that would be on the radio. What lyricists out there have been the biggest influence for you? Number one would have to be the English translations of uh, Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris. Eric Blau and Mort Schumann are some of the greatest lyrics uh, ever written. And uh, he wrote all these trends. No love, you're not alone. And Mama, do you see what I see? On your knees and pray for me. Matilda's come back to me. Go ask the maid if she heard what I said and tell her to put the best sheets on the bed. Matilda's come back to me. And when I heard that, I jumped right through the table. I thought I had never heard something so exciting. And so I wondered, will I ever feel that joy? Will anybody love me that much? Will I ever love anybody that much? Will they come back? It was a revelation. And Johnny Mercer, of course, wrote every song that matters for the last hundred years. It's as simple as that. Johnny Mercer wrote every song that will outlive all of us by a thousand years. In the really pop world, Cynthia Wilde is uh, above and beyond great. I mean, Cynthia Wilde is just a goddess of contemporary music. She's being installed in a couple of days in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Uh, they just got to get the hot water pipe up her leg and she'll be there forever. And lastly, I would have to say Rod McEwen. Rod McEwen uh, wrote, uh, if you go away on a summer day, then you might as well take the sun away. Just beautiful. And I've been lucky enough to have Rod and Cynthia Wilde uh, at guests at my UCLA class that I teach January, February, March, uh, writing lyrics that succeed and endure. I've been doing that, believe it or not, I just finished my 17th year, which meant that I started at five. So I must have been really hot stuff to be able to teach a class at a, at a university at five years old. Anyway, those are my idols. Tell us about the song that you wrote, This One's For You. This One's For You is an interesting song. The person I wrote it for and I weren't really speaking anymore. And it was my way of reaching out to try to make touch and to talk to someone that I, w I wished I could talk to, but I had to do it over the radio. I'll tell you a little funny story. At the end of the year of Barry's touring, uh, he would uh, meet me and uh, uh, at a little restaurant, and he would say, okay, let me hear your fall collection. And he sat down opposite me at a table, and I started. This one will never sell. They'll never understand. I don't even sing it well. I try, but I just can't. And he pushed his hand up in front of me, and he said, stop. I have to have a number one song that says, this one will never sell, and I can't even sing it. <laughs> he says, forget about the rest of it. I love it already. And, well, I read him the rest of the song. You know, it's really come back into prominence in the last 
a couple of years. I think there was a long period of time where even now was uh, the keynote song, but uh, in the latest production at the Paris Hotel of his show, uh, this one's for you has certainly uh, been highlighted and uh, gotten uh, more acclaim uh, than it ever has before. Well, you just mentioned Even Now. Tell us about the song Even Now. Oh, gosh. Even Now. You know, in the wee small hours of the morning, everyone misses someone. When you're lonely, when you're heartbroken, when you're down and out, of course you miss someone. You miss everyone. Well, there were a thousand songs that said that. But I missed someone even at the best time, at the best moment of my life, when I was flying high, when I had had the greatest success I ever imagined or or, or couldn't even imagine, I missed someone because they were just worth missing and because I wanted them to be there to share it with me. And I couldn't think of a song that said, even now, when I have come so far, I wonder where you are. I wonder why it's still so hard without you. I couldn't think of a song that said, I'm okay, but where the hell are you still? And, uh, and so I wrote Even Now. Tell us about the song that you wrote that was covered by Penny Rogers through the years. Well, you know, through the years was, again, a sentiment that I had not heard another song say. My relationships, the key relationships in my life have been my mom, Barry, my brother, my partner for over 30 years. There was no song that said how much those relationships or a relationship contributes to your overall well-being and joy and comfort and growth over a long period of time. And I uh, that's all I knew about. I did, wasn't interested in people that I'd be friendly with for two days or for two weeks. I wanted forever. And I was lucky to have uh, forever in many different ways. And so I wrote the song through the years. The wonderful thing is that because it is such a testimonial to a longstanding relationship, it's been used as the 100th birthday song for uh, George Burns been sung at the relighting of the Statue of Liberty. It's become the number one wedding song. You know, it's about things that last, and I'm about things that last, you know, and uh, my, my relationships are about that. And once again, a commonality in all my lyrics is if there's another song that says that, I don't know it. Is there a song of yours that you could possibly pick as a favorite? As a favorite song? Well, Probably. There's a song that no one knows, uh, but it's called I Love You Back to Life. I Love You Back to Life. There's only one recorded version of it by Davis Gaines. Davis Gaines is a Broadway uh, artist who played the Phantom of the Opera 3,870-something a time. He recorded on uh, Against the Tide on one of his CDs, both all the time, and I love you back to life. And there's no question that I love you back to life is my favorite, my dearest lyric. And and I always say, if you put me into a Cusinart and you turned it on, what would come out would be I'll back to life. Our special guest is Marty Panzer. How did the idea for an evening with Marty Panzer come to be? Well, you know, it's a very, that's a very concurrent question, a very contemporary question. 
A couple of years ago, I did a benefit for the Academy of New Musical Theater, and they just added me on the bill of four or five other uh, composers, including Rod McEwen and David Shire, and I don't remember who else. And I was supposed to do 50 minutes. I didn't know of what, but I told the story, and then someone came out, and the story had led into this song that they sang. And then I told another story, and somebody else came out and sang that song. When I came off the stage after 20 minutes, the audience was just on fire. Everyone loved it. Head of the organization said, you know, the next time we do a benefit, we don't need the other five guys. And I said, really? Thank you. Well, about a month later, he called me and said, if we give you a theater and an audience, would you do an entire evening for us as a benefit? And I said, sure. And he got me the uh, Coronet Theater. And on one night, about three or four years ago, I did an evening with Marty Panzer with uh, many people singing, with Diane Schur and with uh, Eric McCormack and with uh, Monica Mancini and with Barry Manilow and with David Burnham and Brian Green, all kinds of wonderful, magnificent, uh, talented people. And it went over spectacularly well. I wondered whether it was going over so well because so many of the people in the audience knew me and loved me and would have laughed at anyway. I got a call a couple of months later from a guy in Walnut Creek who asked me to do that same show for him in Northern California near San Jose. And I did. Well, these people didn't know the United States of America, uh, much less an evening with Marty Panzer. They reacted just as enthusiastically as the people in L.A. So I said, you know, maybe there is something to this because it has a broader market than I thought. 48 hours ago, I did a an event for the Society of Sheet Music, for the New York Sheet Music Society in New York City, to another 150 people that I had never met or seen and didn't even know what the organization was. And my inbox is flooded with congratulations and thank yous and appreciation. And we must do this. We must make this a an offer. Show, we must put you on tour, we must do all of that stuff. So maybe the next phase of what Marty Panzer does is uh, evenings with Marty Panzer in one form or another. I love doing it. And you know, when I watch Barry on the stage in Vegas, you think there just is no greater thrill than being on that stage. It doesn't matter what you do behind the scenes. When you see Barry glowing on stage, you think, that is the highest calling. So even if I write Anna Karenina and make it a number one single, it's not the same as winking your eye and singing uh, even now. So maybe an evening with uh, Marty Panzer in some form or another uh, will actually come to something. There are also some producers putting together an original show uh, based around songs in my catalog. I'm more enthusiastic about that uh, now than I've ever been before. Uh, as I said, especially uh, after seeing Barry having such a fabulous time these past six years in Las Vegas. So uh, we'll see. I'm going to do a week at the University of Miami uh, in October, and there's a possibility of uh, two other events in New York City and also a possibility of something at uh, college in uh, Nashville. So uh, we'll see. I'm just, you know, you have to move with the time. And uh, maybe this is the time 
while I'm still as positive and optimistic as I am and, and have enough energy to cross the country, uh, maybe that's what I should be doing now. So I'm hoping to do that next. With your songs having been recorded by people like Dionne Warwick, Dolly Parton, Julio Iglesias, and of course, Barry Manilow, you've certainly achieved the kind of success that songwriters are striving for. There have been songwriters who've told me that they've always dreamed of a certain musician or band covering their work. Do you have any that you've been interested in presenting your work to that have not yet? You mean that are alive? Uh, I got some hot dead ones that I'd love to get to, but in terms of the live ones, you know, uh, when you become successful in a certain area, uh, whatever that area is, you receive opportunities in the same field. So I've gotten requests from uh, Michael Crawford and uh, Julio Iglesias and Kenny Rogers and Barry Manilow, all for similar type songs, male ballads and things like that. I would love to write songs for Maroon 5 or for the Rolling Stones, but they wouldn't think to call me because my reputation is not in that area. Not that I couldn't do it or wouldn't want to do it, but that uh, no one thinks of me for that when that situation comes up. What I have done in the last I guess 10 years is I've written over a hundred songs for the Walt Disney company. So I've written the newest songs in a generation for Cinderella, Belle, Mulan, Ariel, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, uh, Jasmine, Pocahontas. Uh, that was an enormous thrill and it allowed me to speak in a different language than I had ever uh, spoken in or written in before because they were women and because Pocahontas uh, had different things to say than uh, Michael Crawford. And it's been an absolute thrill. My my collaborator for all of that has been uh, Larry Grossman for Pocahontas 2, my beloved friend Don Grady for uh, all the other Disney songs. And uh, I've had a wonderful time doing that. And it's broadened my ability. I'm better at what I do now because of those opportunities. And I and I wish I would get other opportunities in different fields than the automatic expected ones. That's all I can say. I'm I'm grateful for the ones that I get, but you know, it's more interesting to write the song for the octopus villain in uh, a Disney movie uh, than it is for another male vocalist uh, love song. So when someone listens to a song you wrote, what is it you hope the listener gets from the experience of listening? You know, I think today so much is about the track. So much is about the musical track uh, that people ignore the lyrics to an enormous degree. They just don't even hear the lyrics uh, as they're playing. I sit in rooms with people who come to play me songs, and while their own lyrics are playing, uh, they're not even uh, focused on them. And I think what I want people to get is the importance of the lyric, the value of a lyric, what a lyric can give to a song, and how much it means. You know, Barry said a quote that is a really uh, apt, and I told it to someone a couple of weeks ago, and they just jumped up for joy. They thought it was so appropriate. Barry said, a song is something you can sing in the shower. Whereas if you need 20 tracks to put together this 
cut. What you have is a production. You have a record, but you don't have a song. And I think he's right. I think a song is a mu- music and a lyric. And when people listen to a song, I want them to hear the value, the importance of a lyric. And that's what I teach at UCLA. And that's what means the most to me. Do we have time for me to tell you my favorite lyric of all time? We absolutely do. Okay. Well, I'll just, I, there has never been a class in 17 years that I have not recited this lyric. Because it it informed me and educated me more than anything else. Our little dream castle, with every dream gone, is lonely and silent. The shades are all drawn. And my heart is aching as I gaze upon cottage for sale. The lawn we were proud of is waving in hay. Our beautiful garden has withered away where we planted roses. The weeds seem to say, a cottage for sale. Through every broken window, I see your face. But when I reach the window, there's only empty space. The keys in the mailbox, the same as before. But no one is waiting for me anymore. The end of my story is there, on the door. A cottage for sale. What can I tell you? That is beyond brilliant. I mean, that is a four-hour movie in a three-minute song. It's the most beautiful lyric I ever heard, and it is so compact. Every word has significance and is appropriate. It's conversational. It's descriptive. It paints a picture. That's what I want people to listen to in songs. Songs were written that way until the producers took over. And it wasn't about the song anymore. It was about the producer putting a hundred tracks behind somebody who had no real great song, but who could fake having a real song if there were 20 tracks playing at the same time. So I'm trying to get people to go back to writing the great songs, the songs that the Eagles wrote, the songs that Barry wrote, the songs that Johnny Mercer wrote, the songs that Cynthia Weil wrote, the great songs, and to understand a great part of them are the lyrics. I've been doing it for 17 years, and I hope, hope I've accomplished something. We'll hear as time goes on whether the people in my class have come up with these kind of lyrics for the world. You've been working on a book. What has the experience of writing a book been like for you? Well, you know, originally when I started thinking of this, of whatever uh, the right form for a presentation of uh, uh, An Evening with Marty Pants would be putting down the reminiscences and leading into songs and other songs, my first thought and the first suggestions given me were uh, that I should put it in book form. And I started, I had a really terrific guy working for me uh, who helped me with computer and all kinds of stuff. And, and I just enjoyed telling him the stories. And as I was telling him the stories, he was entering into the computer. When he left to go on to a, a job on Broadway, I stopped uh, doing the book because I didn't have the same zest for telling these stories to somebody else. But I think now I'm going to go back to it because I realize that the response has been so consistent over all these years. If I can make the book as entertaining as the show is, well, it should be put down on paper so that if I get hit by a truck tomorrow, these stories don't die with me. 
So I'm going to go back to the book, which I have sort of left there in behalf of the new work that uh, came along. It was seemed to me more important to write 100 songs for Disney than to continue writing my life story. I was living my life story. But right now, I think I need to go back and while it's still fresh in my mind, continue that book and flesh out these stories on paper. So, so that's on my agenda as well. What is the best thing about being Marty Panzer? You know, the best thing about being Marty Panzer is that I am Molly Panzer's son and Barry Manilow's friend and Greg Rader's partner and Bernie Panzer's brother. That's the best thing about being Marty Panzer, that I have roots and connections to wonderful, supportive, loving people for 40 years. And I love every day because I have the love of these people. And I've been very lucky to not be alone and to not be doing this on my own and to have the support of these people. So that's what makes me happiest. That's a beautiful answer. And now for the final question. We have listeners from all over the world. How much is this question worth? Is it of dollar value? No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how much this is worth. Okay. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for our listeners? The most important thing, I think, in whatever you do is to live a good life and to be out there in the world and to listen to other people and to hold on to those that love you and give back as much as you can and appreciate, as Diane sure did, how good life really is. And I think that um, the other things that seem like miracles really come as an outgrowth of your own good nature, your own talent, your own observation. I think just get up in the morning and live your life to the fullest and write it down and believe in it. And you will be surprised how many people out there feel the same way and would love to communicate with you and and would love your communicating to them uh, your ideas. Mr. Panzer, it has been fabulous to do this interview with you. But, you know, I was just thinking during this interview, a lot of people might think this is the first time we've ever talked in this interview. But I realized when I was thinking about all these songs that this isn't the first time we've talked because I've been listening to you tell me these stories and these messages through these songs that I've heard since I was six, seven years old with my mother playing these records growing up. Really? So, yes, I've heard these songs my whole life. And so I'd like to say, first of all, thank you for the great interview. Thank you also for these songs that have touched me for a very long time. You are more than welcome. And I'll tell you, that's the best compliment you could ever give me to touch someone to make someone feel happy or sad. I read on the bus one day when I was 10 years old, to change the complexion of the day, that is the ultimate art. If you can make someone feel happier or feel some emotion that they weren't feeling before, you interacted with them, you've accomplished what God put you on the earth for. So I thank you very much, and I accept that compliment uh, with enormous humility and enormous pride. Well, again, thanks so much for the interview. Let me know if you're ever in Atlanta. I will, and maybe this, 
I think maybe one of these early shows here of uh, an evening with maybe the first one is in Tallahassee. I don't know. I don't know the distance between Atlanta and Tallahassee, but uh, it's in the same quadrant of the world. So we'll find each other. I promise. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you again. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, the entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.